and Matthew 26, beginning to read from verse 17 through to 35. This is God's Word to us. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near, and I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad, and they began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. And Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not have been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I, will ne I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. Well, if you have a, a Bible handy, let's turn together to that passage that we read earlier in Matthew chapter 26, uh, those verses from 17 to uh, 36. It's page 996 if you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles. One of the questions that sometimes people ask is, how do we hear God speak to us today? And, and in our church tradition, the, the, the way that, that we answer that question is very much through the Bible, through His Word. And, and also, as we gather together as a church family, and we look at this word together, that's, that's part of how we, we believe God speaks to us, and that's why uh, this takes a, a, a fairly prominent part in our morning together. So, uh, we're thinking about this passage that we read earlier, where Jesus gathers with His disciples for the Last Supper. And if you think about it, there are not that many uh, occasions in our culture where where a meal has lots of traditions associated with it. 
John was talking about Christmas there. Christmas is one of those occasions where at least we usually eat the same thing. But once you start to push under the surface, most families have got their own sort of traditions. And, and some families do it one way and some family does it another way and so on. Uh, maybe you've been to a Burns night supper. And that's maybe a slightly better example because there at least you can expect certain things to take place, addressing the haggis and, and all sorts of uh, it's a bit like some sort of secret society, but, but the, uh, all sorts of things that, that have to happen uh, for you to have a, a proper Burns Night Supper. In Jesus' day, however, there was one particular meal that every Jew took part in, and pretty much the way that it happened for every Jew for, for about 1,400 years was pretty much unchanged, and it was the Passover. Uh, here in Matthew, we, we read that on the night before Jesus died, so this is taking place during Easter week, as it were, on the night before Jesus died, Jesus and his disciples celebrated this ancient practice, and, and he used it to talk about who he is and, and what he's done and what we need to do, and, and therefore, that's what we want to think about today. It's a really, really significant part of the Bible. As John was saying, the Passover had its roots in the Old Testament in the story of the Exodus. God's people at this time were in uh, Egypt. They were slaves. They were uh, made to do all sorts of incredible work. Uh, lots of the old historical things that you would find in, in Exodus were, uh, were, or in, in Egypt were built by slaves, and God's people were put to work to make bricks and so on for some of the great building projects of Egypt. And God heard their cries. They were asking God to deliver them from this slavery, and he answered them, and there was a series of plagues that we perhaps have heard about, ramping up to the last plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn. And this was because the Egyptian authorities were unwilling to let the people go. And on that night, the angel of the Lord passed through that country, and the firstborn in every house died, unless the people had followed God's instruction to kill the lamb, to put the blood on the doorpost. And so they were saved by the blood of the lamb, as it were. And it was an indication that they were trusting in what God had said, and they were obedient to his command. And that night did lead to Pharaoh letting the people go. And they left, left Egypt and its slavery, and they set out through the Red Sea into the promised land. Now, since that time, 1400 years B.C., since that time, the Passover feast was celebrated, and thanks was given to God for his mighty deliverance in the past, and, and Jesus continues that as he celebrates this Passover meal, and there were all sorts of expected rules and rituals that took place around that meeting. There were, there were uh, significant preparations that had to be made. Verse 19 tells us that the disciples uh, spent a day getting all of these things ready. So there was unleavened bread that had to be made. There were bitter herbs that were prepared. There was a lamb that had to be killed. Uh, salt water was used to remind them of the tears of slavery. Uh, there was a special paste made from apples that, that reminded them of the, the clay of the bricks and so on. And there were four cups of wine. Interestingly, that passage that John read before uh, we prayed this morning uh, from Exodus 6, four cups of wine at different parts in the meal, sort of ritual drinks, as it were, that uh, referenced the four promises that God had made in those verses. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you for my own. And 
a, I, you will be my people and I will be your God. And as the meal progressed, the host would say certain things and do certain things in this meal, <clears throat> and uh, they would take the people back in their minds to the Exodus event. But on this occasion, 1,400 years after this tradition had been going, Jesus did something absolutely amazing. He, he changed the liturgy. He, he changed the whole direction of what was happening. The, the disciples would have heard this dozens of times since their childhood. They would have known every word, but, but Jesus took it and turned it around, and rather than saying, this is what happened in the Exodus 1,400 years ago, he said, this is what's going to happen to me. It was to say, in effect, that everything that happened 1,400 years ago is really pointing to me and what I will do. It was a remarkable thing for him to do. You know, lots of people uh, think that Jesus was uh, just a good man, and he was uh, found on the wrong side of powerful people who wanted to get rid of him. So his death was a sort of unfortunate end to a promising career. But that does not fit the facts at all. Jesus is absolutely clear that he's come into the world to die, and he's clear that he's come at this point to Jerusalem to die at the Passover, and he takes the opportunity to teach his disciples about who he is and about what we need. So what is it that we need to know? And remember, not only does he do this with these disciples, knowing that we would hear about it, but he institutes this communion meal that, that uh, we often have here to remind us about this event so that we would learn and relearn and be reminded of the uh, things that he's teaching us here. So what is it we need to know? Well, we, we need to know a number of things. First of all, Jesus is the one who forgives sins. Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness. You see, he says in verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, now, you see, what would have happened normally at a Passover meal is that that would have been one of the cups that was associated with one of those promises. He would have said, uh, they would have raised a cup, for example, and said, you know, God has said, I will redeem you, and they would have drank together. But, but Jesus takes one of these cups, and he turns it around, and he says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant. Now, we're fairly familiar with associating Jesus with forgiveness. That's probably pretty much a, a, in our, our thinking, but, but what's he saying here? Well, all the way through the Bible, the consistent claim is made that God is holy and we're not. The Bible just assumes that, teaches that all of the time. He is pure and we're not. He is consistent and we're not. And, and our not being like God is, is what the Bible calls sin. So, so we go our own way. We're self-centered rather than God-centered. We ignore what he says. And if we know anything about ourselves, then we, we, we know that that's what we're like. And it's not always that we are angry with God particularly. We, we just treat him as uh, irrelevant to our day-to-day -day lives, and we sort of push him to the edge. 
And, and what this does, this rebellion, this, this sinfulness, this, this creates a, a great cloud between us and God, a, a separation. We might think of it as a, a cloud that cuts us off from the sun, or, or uh, I mentioned a number of weeks ago, uh, John Bunyan had, had told the story of Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress, of Christian and Christians in Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, there he is portrayed as, as a, a weary traveler with a great burden upon his back. Sometimes we, we feel that. We just feel this sense of being weighed down, and we wonder, what is it that's doing that? And, and part of what the Bible says is, this is caused because we, we, we're cut off from God. Now, now, our culture doesn't talk a lot about sin, and yet we, we do have a sense, don't we, even as a culture, that all is not well. We know that we've not found peace in life. We, we know that, that, that everything just breaks and, and runs into the ground and corrupts and so on. We, we, and we know that we don't measure up. We, we, we have this awareness that we don't measure up to our own standards, our own goals, but we have a sense that there are goals that are outside of us, a standard that's outside of us that we know we don't measure up to either. Why is that? It's because our relationship with God is, is broken. That brokenness is, is our sin. Now, what needs to happen to this sin? Well, it needs to be forgiven, and Jesus is the one who here says that he is the one who does that. Now, that's not Jesus saying, I forgive you like two friends, like a brother and a sister, or two friends who, who have fallen out and saying some hard things, and, and, and then they, they need to, to make up. It's not that sort of forgiveness at a horizontal level. This is the, the, the sin between us and God. So, so this is the burden that's on our backs. And, and Jesus is claiming that he is the one who's able to do that, to, to make that problem between us and the Father go away. How he does that, we'll see in a moment. Now, what an amazing claim. So, so some of us might think, well, do you know what? I, I don't really need that. E even when it comes to God. Because our, our, our default position is to Think of God rather like a driving examiner. Do you remember going back to your driving test? Some of you possibly learned to drive when there wasn't a driving test. That's really scary. I don't know how, how you do that. But, but, uh, but for the rest of us, we went through a driving test. And, and certainly at the time I went through the driving test, there were majors and minors, you know. And, and you could get away with still passing your test. If you had a, a few majors, you could have quite a few minors, which was okay. And, but you could sort of scrape through. And I remember my instructor... I'm sure this wouldn't happen today, but I remember my instructor telling me that, you know, if there were a few problems, if you drove well for the rest of the drive, you'd probably get through okay. I don't know if it's like that anymore. But lots of us think of God like that. As long as there's nothing too bad about the rest of my life, well, even if there are a few issues, hopefully what happens over there will make up for what happened back here and I'll sort of scrape through. But listen, that, that's not the way it works with God. God is, is perfect. If you like to think of it this way, the pass mark is 100%. For, for us to come to him, we need to be perfect, clean. How can we do that? How can, how can we be made clean? Well, we need our sin forgiven. That's, that's what it's saying. It, not just compensated for, not just overlooked. It can't be overlooked. 
needs to be forgiven. And Jesus is the one who brings that. So it doesn't come from anywhere else. There's no other way to get right with God. We, we read at the beginning of the service, no one comes to the Father except through me. It doesn't come through our own efforts. You know, Jesus has to do what we can't do. Did you notice that after the meal, Jesus predicts that all the disciples will fall away that night? They would all abandon him? Oh, they they protest and say, oh, we'll never, even if everybody else does, Lord, we'll not do it. Peter does that particularly. But doesn't that highlight? Here are the very best, the very most committed disciples. And yet, what do we find? They were failures. You see, they need Jesus' forgiveness. And if they do, well, then everybody does. So he's the one who brings forgiveness. That's what Jesus is telling us right in the night before he dies, in instituting this meal, he's saying there are some things that you really must know. As he sees the church rippling down through the ages, thousands of years into the future. Here are some things you really must know and never forget. You're going to to have a a meal together to remember this. Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness. Second thing, he brings forgiveness by becoming a sacrifice, by becoming a sacrifice. This this is language and and concepts that, that don't just make loads of sense to us today but they would have been really familiar to the disciples. So verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we've said all through the Bible that this issue of of sin cuts us off from God. We are different from him and that makes us, it makes it difficult for God and us to be in the same place. You know, we see that in the Bible again, the story of the Bible. When God shows up, uh, people shrink back, fall over, When he saves his people out of Egypt at the Passover, he establishes the way that God's people will be able to worship him. And what we see as we look at that in a big picture sort of way is that it's not easy. God is really holy. His people are really not holy. And they've got to keep their distance. And so there's all sorts of sort of ways in which they're protected from God because God and them being in the one place is a really tricky thing. And yet, this God seeks to come near us. He he wants to come near us. And in particular, he makes agreements with his people. The Bible calls them covenants. He says, for example, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to rescue you. You're going to follow me. But these agreements are made between a holy God and a sinful people. And in order that God and his people might be near one another, a whole sort of sacrificial system is set up to indicate that the forgiveness that has to happen requires the shedding of blood. So you'll have known that, for example, there were, there were lots of animals that were sacrificed all through the Old Testament age. So when an Israelite came near to God to worship, often an animal would lose its life. And, and what was happening there was the Israelite was saying, you know, God, I, I'm drawing near to you, and I know that, that I cannot come near by myself. I deserve to die to be this close to you, but something else has died in my place. Now, at the same time, the Bible makes it clear that that those animal sacrifices didn't actually do anything objectively. So, 
In Hebrews 10, it says, it's impossible for the bulls, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So they pointed to the fact that something needed to be done, that blood needed to be shed, that a suitable sacrifice had to die, but they didn't actually deal with the problem. Now, God had promised, you see, that a new and better covenant would come for his people, a covenant where they would truly find that their sins were forgiven, where they would truly know God, that God would really dwell with them. And then at this point, just before his death, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So a new covenant is here, and it's going to be brought in by sacrifice, but the sacrifice will not be a lamb. It will be Jesus. It's my blood, he says. It's my broken body, he says. So you see, Jesus is the one who is the sacrifice who produces forgiveness. Because sin just can't be ignored. It's like a debt that has to be paid. And the animal sacrifices pointed to the need for a perfect sacrifice, but they didn't actually bring that forgiveness. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice who would forgive this, who would bring this. Because he is, he's a man, he's therefore qualified to represent us in a way that a, a lamb wasn't. Because he is God, his sacrifice is of infinite value. One of the, the key parts of the, the Passover meal, as we've said, was, was a lamb. You remember it was a, a lamb that was killed originally in the Passover and the blood put in the doorposts. But interesting, although the, all the Gospels mention this Passover meal, this, this Last Supper, they never mention the lamb. Now, it was almost certainly there. It would be part of the preparations that were made in verse 19. But it seems to be very deliberate that the Gospels don't mention the Lamb. Why is that? Because Jesus is the Lamb. The Gospels have already made that point. Early in, in the story, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming on one occasion. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later on, Peter writes in his letter, Peter who was there at this meal, says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So you see, in the same way that 1,400 years ago, the lamb stood in for the people, it was their substitute, so Jesus stands in for us. He's the one that God has provided. He's the one who affects our escape from slavery, the slavery of death. We needed a substitute. Jesus is the one who goes in our place. His body is broken for you and for me. He says, I am dying in your place. So that's what happens on the cross. Jesus is saying all of this just a few hours before he goes to the cross. L later writers uh, reflect on it and underline it. So Paul, for example, says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's, let's think about that a moment. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5. So, so what's it saying? Jesus has a perfect record before God. He lived a, a perfectly obedient life in, in thought and word and deed. He had no sin. God made him who had no sin. We, on the other hand, are, are full of sin. We're, we're not as bad as we could be, but we're tainted in every part of our lives. What happens at the cross? Jesus became sin for us. Our sin is, is, is placed on his shoulders. So, so, so that when, when Jesus is on the cross, God looks at him and sees not only his beloved son, 
not only his perfection, but sees all of our sin transferred onto his shoulders. You think of it, piled high on the spotless Lamb of God. And there it is punished, it's paid for. But, but that's not all. His, his perfect record is transferred over to our account. He, he takes our sin, we get his righteousness. What a deal. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, either your, your burden, remember that picture of John, Burden's, uh, John Bunyan's picture of, of Christian with a great burden on his shoulders? You see, either your burden rests on your shoulders or it is transferred to Jesus on the cross. And this is why the cross is so important. And this is why a solution can't be found anywhere else. This is why Jesus is able to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me because he's the only one who's done this. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, third thing, last thing, just in a moment. And that is that, that, that we need to, to enter in. Je Jesus calls us to to enter into what he has done. This is a, maybe a little bit hard to get our heads around because it would be easy to say, wouldn't it? Oh, that's great, isn't it? Isn't it great that, that Jesus has paid for my sin? So I've got nothing to worry about, nothing for me to do. But if we thought that, we would, we would have made a mistake because it's clear, first of all, that not everybody is forgiven. You see how Jesus describes it? This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So not everyone is, forgiveness, is forgiven. That's really important. Judas, for example, walks away from Jesus. We read that at the beginning of the reading. He turns against Jesus, remains unforgiven, never repents, never turns around. And Jesus himself says the consequences of being unforgiven are terrible. It would have been better that he'd never been born. So what's required for us to benefit today? What's required for us to benefit from what Jesus does? You see what he says? He says, take and eat. This is my body. And with the cup, drink you all of it. What does it mean to eat and drink Jesus? It's not just talking about taking communion. Jesus had actually taught about this in John's gospel in chapter six. There he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. In other words, it is coming to Jesus and believing in him that is set up there as the equivalent of, of eating and drinking. So eating and drinking is just another way of saying, I'm believing you, I'm trusting you. And it's not just thinking, I know that you're there. It's saying, I'm abandoning myself to you. Again, there is a message that runs right the way through the Bible. Jesus says you, you, we need to repent and believe. That's one of the, the things that he begins by saying at the start of his ministry. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Turn from your own way. Trust in me. But believe. Believe in the fact that, that when I went to the cross, I went there for you. Believe in the fact that my blood covers your sin. Believe in me. As Jesus said in that same John passage, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Down through the years, Christians have, have summarized 
Christian teaching in all sorts of different ways. One of the ways they've done that is in catechisms. There were supposed to be questions and answers for the boys and girls. And one of the first ones was, uh, one of the early ones was called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the beginning of the, the answer to the first question says this. The question is this, what's your only comfort in life and death? How would you answer that question? What's your only comfort in life and death? Well, we can think of all sorts of comforts in life, but they sometimes pale into insignificance in the face of death, don't they? What's your only comfort? The answer goes like this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. See, that's what it means to believe. All my hope is pinned there. He's the one I'm staking my life on. What he has done is what matters to me. That's where I'm resting. I, I said a few months ago that I was in uh, London and, and I got a little lost. I was walking around waiting for my train. I came upon John Bunyan's grave. And, and, and on the side of his grave, there are two carvings, one on one side, one on the other. One is of pilgrim before he is come to the cross, and, and, and there he is with his great burden on his shoulders, all bent over. And then you walk over to the other side of the grave, and there he is. He's come to the cross. He's kneeling at the cross. His burden has rolled off his shoulders down the hill, and he's free from it. You see, this is what Jesus does. And this is what he wants to remind us of. You think of it, he knows that he only has a number of hours with these disciples. He's going to be arrested. This is what he institutes for us to remember. Here's what we need to know. Here's what we need to, to rehearse in our minds again and again as we come together that Jesus is the one who takes the burden of our sin so that, that, that we walk out into the world knowing that, that we are right with him. How amazing. Or if we're not yet, knowing that we can be, not because of ourselves, but because of him. Jesus, the one who forgives sins. Jesus brings forgiveness by becoming a sacrifice, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus calls us to enter in to what he has done. Let's pray together. Lord, just so amazing to think of the Lord Jesus going to the cross for us, not only enduring its physical pain, but there becoming sin for us. Lord, we, we don't begin to understand all of that. But we thank you for his great love for people like us, that, that he should lay down his life, that we might have life everlasting. Oh, help us, Lord, to be grateful. Help us to trust in you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.